This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to have you uh, here with us. You all, welcome to church. It's great to see you. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet one another uh, yet, my name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here at Christ the King, and uh, we're thrilled uh, to be together out of our homes. Look at us. Some of you are like, I'm not thrilled to be out of my house. I like my house. I'd stay there forever if it was, well, you know, we've all invaded your party, I guess, is what I'm saying. Is we're all, it's good that we're together. It's time for us, I think, to be together and to be out and in the world, and it's still um, cold out there. I'm adjusting to Januarys in Arkansas. Januarys in Atlanta are different. I've been there for the last 15 years or so, so this is still, still new. So if you're struggling to feel like you're getting into a rhythm and a routine in January, you're not alone. I think we all are right there with you. And yet Epiphany um, moves on. Time moves on. The calendar uh, moves on. And so I feel really grateful to have the opportunity to spend uh, today with all of you in these passages. Yes, we're going to be looking at um, this passage from Mark and also to be reminded of the season. So for us uh, here at Christ the King, churches all over the world, the church calendar functions as a kind of lens through which we look at these passages. So for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, and you've heard the story of Jesus calling his first disciples like one bazillion times, the gift of the church calendar is that it sort of uh, provides a different angle or perspective, uh, kind of interpretive lens through which to read the story, to think about it as you engage with it maybe differently or again for, as if for the first time. And so the lens for us right now is a season of epiphany, this is a season, as we've said in weeks past, where we're called to think about the manifestation of Jesus. That's what the word means. Epiphany comes from a Greek word uh, that means uh, to be made manifest or manifestation. And so it raises a question, of course, which is like, what is being made manifest? What is the manifestation? If Jesus, of course, we're led to assume is the manifestation, if he is that, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? And so that's the point of the season, is to give thought to what is being made manifest. And we started out the season by sort of answering the question, to say you could answer it probably a lot of ways. But um, we're going to name, maybe firstly, that Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. That's a huge theme in the season of Epiphany, is the glory of God. That when what we see, when we see Jesus, is we see God's glory. That's how he has chosen to reveal himself to us, to reveal his glory. What does that mean? you know, the glory of God that we see in Jesus. And uh, we've said in weeks past, and sort of bears repeating, what we see when we see the glory of God revealed in Jesus is the love of God. The Gospels, the Bible, New Testament will sort of reinforce us and come back to it over and over, that it is God's heart that is made manifest to us in the person and the face of Jesus Christ, that we have, uh, there are a thousand different ways to talk about it, but if you miss that thing, you sort of miss the whole thing. 
that Jesus is actually God's love and his undefeatable love at that. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we named specifically that it is um, the glory of God is that not just that he loves us, but that this love is undefeatable, that it is the strength of the universe. It's the power, not just a power, but the power by which all things are held and made. There's nothing stronger than God's love. And that may sit on you sort of like empty or flat, or you may not like feel anything or know what to do with it, and that's okay. You just have to note it. That there's nothing about God that is more glorious than his love for you. That to him, in other words, what fuels the beauty of heaven, the grandeur of heaven, the power of heaven, is not his might or the strength of his will, but it is his heart, his love for this world and for you. It is his goodness in his love. That that is the strength of who Jesus is. The strength that we're invited into. And it is, in fact, undefeatable. It is the greatest thing that there is. Which is why um, that this will now be the third Sunday that we have apparently referenced Rabel. He just keeps coming back here. It was like two Sundays ago, now, and now here we are again. Because I said in passing during communion that if you wanted to sort of sum all of that I just said, if you wanted to sum it up, you would say, like, well, you could say, love wins which is the title of a book that Rob Bell wrote a few years ago, in which he was trying to talk about this fact, this sort of like the power of God's undefeatable love for the world. And so then I think Chris brought it up again, and so here we are again today. We're going to talk about two things, because if you were paying attention in the readings uh, that are assigned to us through the lectionary, you would have noticed that they share a theme in common. Um, and that theme is uh, sort of, uh, in short, evangelism. The proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing in Mark 1, is that he is going out calling disciples. He begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel and then calls disciples, invites them to come along with him. And so that, all the readings, Jonah 3, Jonah's commissioned by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. It's the theme of the week. The church calendar has set up a Sunday for us to talk about evangelism and missions. And if this is your first Sunday here and you're like, my God, why did I choose today for today to be the day I would come to church? I don't know. Maybe God knew. I don't know. But here we are. We don't like talking about evangelism. Some of us. Complicated history. Complicated history for some of us personally. Complicated history for the church. Maybe especially here in Northwest Arkansas. That's true. And so what I think is, um, you know what you could do to make a hard thing even harder is to tack on talking about hell. And that's precisely what I've chosen to do, apparently, is to talk about hell and evangelism together in one Sunday. So buckle up, church. Here we go. And it's because, um, you know, if you're just going to say a thing like love wins, it raises questions. It ought to raise questions for you. And what is the relationship between our convictions about what we believe about that fact and hell and our evangelism and our commandment, really, by Jesus to like share this gospel and this good news? How does it all work together? And that is a complicated and important question that a lot of us have been wrestling through in a lot of different ways for a long time. And for some of us, it's a particularly heavy thing. Because... I know, looking around this room, a lot of you have a very personal, a very direct history, and a painful one at that. 
And so you bear the weight of that story and that complicated history in your own soul and have for a long time. And so what we're going to do is this morning um, acknowledge that, that it is complicated, both the history and knowing how to like work through all these things. How do we hold them together? How do we reconcile a fact like God's glory being this undefeatable love and the reality of judgment? How do you begin to reconcile that? It's complicated. So we're going to put all of that personal history in that way. We're going to put it squarely um, before the Lord and ask for his mercy for one another. And we're going to deal with it because we're the people of God. And you need to hear me say that I feel like I know with the sort of meager authority as it may be that Jesus has given me to declare such things. There are some of you that I happen to know are in fact called by Jesus to be evangelists, y'all. To be good news people. And that that's just a fact. And it may be a complicated fact for you. And it may have meant a lot of complicated things for you in your life, but it doesn't change the fact of it. And so some of us have maybe some like reclaiming to do or some healing to do with God. Others of us have some decisions to make about Jesus, like firstly, about his gospel. And the reason that we come together and get out of our homes, the coziness of them, and, you know, sort of crawl before God is so that we can put ourselves in a place to heal, to be made new, to, like, receive from God the life that we need so that we can carry it out there to people who also need that kind of undefeatable, unconquerable love and life. And some of you all were meant to carry it and bury it and take it with you and you need to deal with the fact that you don't know how or what that means anymore. And so we're going to put all of that before the Lord this morning and ask for his mercy to be with us and just see what he would say and do. Um, Jesus, here in Mark's gospel, the first verse of our passage says this, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed, of course, euangelion, one who bears good news, was a good news gospel announcement that was supposed to matter firstly for life in this world. It was two people living in this world, and it was a good news announcement for life in this world. Um, the gospel, of course, had something to do, this good news, with the kingdom of God, which if you've been around Christ the King months and months ago, we talked a lot about what that means. And we said, in short, that, you know, for Jesus, he was saying to people, hey, the rule and reign of God has, like, come close to you, and you're invited into it. That is good news. And he took that good news with him so that it could matter for people, like, then and now, right now, not after they died, and so we have inherited a history that knows that to be true, and yet at some point, point along the way, that good news gospel announcement turned into something that had at least as much to do with what happens to us when we die. It's like the emphasis got put in a funny place, you know? Jesus became, and the gospel became, a kind of ticket into heaven so that the good news of gospels is, and I, you know, in short, um, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is that you can be saved and go to heaven 
You can be saved from your sin and go to heaven when you die. And hear me, I, and I've said this before, that isn't untrue. It's just so impartial and in part that it's almost a distortion of what's true. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you don't tell the whole truth and you admit too much, it's not exactly a lie, but something's lost. And so, yes, it's true. This gospel is an invitation for you to like spend eternity with Jesus, but that's not the thing that he was excited about. When Jesus went out and was like proclaiming the good news, he was like, hey, the rule and reign of God is here for you. Life with God is available to you now. And that life is not about quantity, but it's about quality. That life begins for you now, and it stretches into eternity. It's immortal. It's undefeatable. Because God's love for you is bigger and greater than all the other stuff. Your sin, your fear, your class, your gender. God's love bigger than all of that. You're invited to live into this life with him. And that will change you from now and forever. You will be marked by immortality and the undefeatable nature of God's love. It will hold you and keep you. That's the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at you Anglicans sounding like Baptists this morning. That's our gospel. And it will save us from hell. Now hell. We affirm our belief in the reality of God's judgment and Jesus' descent into hell every Sunday here at this church when we say the creed. And you'll be like, mm, not me, I don't say that part. <laughs> we do say it. Here's the thing about Rob's book, which I really loved, by the way. Um, and if you really loved The Great Divorce, but you hated Rob's book, you've got some explaining to do. Rob didn't say anything new. He just said it differently. When C.S. Lewis tells a story about heaven and hell, and that story is as brilliant and inspired and profound as The Great Divorce, then we all feel better after we read it. Prose lands differently. But the complexities that Rob's wrestling with in that book around hell are important. They deserve to be wrestled with. How we think about and understand the, the afterlife, the afterlife as it is recorded and portrayed in the Bible, not as easy or straightforward as we would like for it to be. And I'm saying that to you humbly as someone who has devoted my entire life to the pages of that book and to the Lord who has authority over them. The Jews had a hard time wrestling with the afterlife fuzzy notions, sort of vague, frustratingly vague notions. And Jesus himself was a Jew, of course. When we get to the New Testament, which becomes decidedly more apocalyptic, both historically and in the pages of Jesus's preaching, you hear it. These are, we sound different. We talk differently about the reality of God's judgment. Jesus talks about it, y'all, a lot. So we have to figure out how do we affirm, on the one hand, what we know to be true, which is this undefeatable love of God that is made real in the person of Jesus, which has come after us. His goodness has, in fact, come for us. That's a fact. How do we reconcile that with all of this talk of judgment in the Bible? You can't get around it. And here's the thing for me, where Rob and I might depart, and I don't know, haven't asked him, but I actually, as is my nature, have to make room for both of those things because the Bible does. They are not irreconcilable, actually, and here's why. Because love, in its essence, must in fact be two things. It must be free and it must be just. And I cannot on my own, I am not inherently free, nor am I inherently just. Neither's the left. 
neither's the right. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not good on our own, not entirely, not ultimately, not in the way we have to be to hold it all together. We can't. But God in his self, in his glory, is both those things. He is free and he is just. And that is good news because I long for a just world that I can't make on my own. I will make it according to my likeness and the things that I believe in and my own convictions. And if that makes room for you and your convictions, well, that's good. But if it doesn't, well, too bad. And that's how we've all gone about it. And so my hope is that God's ideal of justice is greater and better than mine. And that entails judgment when we fall short of that justice. Now, how that gets meted out and to whom and why I would submit to you is shrouded in mystery on purpose because we are judgy at heart. We like to know who's in and who's out. And Jesus Jesus made it harder for us than some of us may have been able to see because if you look at the pages of the New Testament and you would take issue with what I'm saying, say, well, I don't actually think it's that difficult at all. seems pretty clear to me. There it is in black and white. I want to submit to you as graciously and humbly as I can. It is more complicated. For example... Jesus talked a lot about sheep and goats, left and right, those who enter into glory and those who don't. He called us to grapple with that fact unapologetically, fiercely. He said a lot of things too about mercy and God's love. And then you get to the end of the Bible The book of Revelation, after it's all said and done, new heavens, new earth, resurrection has happened, and we get there, and there's the tree of life. The same tree of life, we're led to presume, that we were introduced to in Genesis 3 when it all fell apart. Yeah? We get to the end of Revelation, and there's the tree of life, and this tree of life is now growing and bearing fruit. It grows out of the river of God over a new Jerusalem and on those branches it bears fruit and that fruit is for what? Whom? The healing of the nations. Who was getting healed on the other side of the resurrection? I don't know. And all God's people hit their knees and put their hands in the air and said, have mercy, Lord. It is for you to decide, you to say. And if that could be the posture of our heart, that we would leave those kinds of things ultimately to God, then what, pray tell, will fuel our evangelism? I wonder sometimes, and I don't know this to be true, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but I wonder if at some point it just became easier to try to scare people out of hell than to be filled with the Holy Spirit and point people towards heaven. It is easier for me. I berate people quite easily. We're fearful by nature. 
It's not hard to manipulate fears. Ask our news and media. Big business, fear-mongering. It works, it's effective, and not untrue. I've sat through those sermons the same as you. It's horrifying to imagine. What if they're right? I've been one of those kids, one of those adults, who, you know, with fear and trembling, my legs had to approach perfect strangers in a shopping mall with a track. <laughs> or some Kurt Cameron spiel that I'd tried very hard to memorize and couldn't quite get right, had something to do with a bridge and sins. Got a napkin. I'm pretty sure I could draw it. If you'll give me 30 seconds, I've practiced a lot. It's easy to point fingers at, to laugh at, to be horrified by. But you know what I find myself thinking about increasingly at 40 is kind of a lot of courage, though, for a kid to knock on a door and try to say, hey, did you know that God loves you? Easy to mock, not easy to do. What fuels this good news for us? What is the motivation? Because I would submit that I think some of us, one of the great fears around listening to Rob or trying to wrestle with or be honest about some of the complexities about the afterlife is that we fear, but if people don't believe in hell, they won't talk about the gospel anymore. Is that true? Was that true for Jesus, do you think? Do you think what motivated Jesus primarily when he went to Peter, James, and John, do you think he rushed up to them at any point and said, hey, good news, you don't have to go to hell? That would be one way of saying it. And again, maybe not untrue. This is not what he did. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. And the gospel is that for God so loved this world that he sent his son so that none would perish but all might have everlasting life. Anyone who believes in him, anyone who wants it, would have access to everlasting life. Jesus started with the love of God. His undefeatable, unquenchable, greater than all of our sin, all my shame, all my fear. That's where it started. And it motivated not just evangelism, but the love of his neighbor. Honesty, change, repentance. So I just think we've got to set all that aside. I actually don't think that if your convictions about hell are primarily what's fueling your evangelism, your evangelism's probably lopsided. Hold on to it. Our fear of judgment. I fear him. And I'll tell you, what I know to be true is that Jesus saved me from hell. And the hell that comes to mind for me, firstly, front of mind, flames may be true and the worms and all that stuff true, but you know what I know? The real hell that I know is my ego, my selfishness, and my fear. 
I know that hell. I don't have to imagine it. And Jesus saved me from that. Thanks be to God. Is saving me from it still. And I can tell people about that. I can be honest with them about that. My grandfather hated church. He hated self-righteousness and hypocrisy. He had a lot of tolerance for other sins. (laughs) But he hated those most of all. He was a cowboy, is a cowboy, team roper, truck driver, bull hauler, he would say proudly. Came to all my basketball games, the funniest person I've ever met. I loved him with my whole heart, love him with my whole heart. Every one of my basketball games, he got directly under the goal, whether we were at home or away, so that he could boss, he would say. And his bossing would make a sailor blush. It's our mother tongue, isn't it, Mommy? He walked me down the aisle when I got married, and I named my first son after him. And we could not get him saved. At least in the way that I thought he needed to be. I believe he would say, but he would not get baptized. Was not about to go to church and march in front of all those hypocrites with all their self-righteous judgment and let them think for one second that he thought they were right. Here's the thing about what we hate. If you do not take authority over it by giving it to God, you will become it. That's the way hate works. It consumes. You can't hold it and keep it. It consumes. And I say that with the utmost respect for my grandfather because I happen to know now that he agrees We got to check that stuff. On the night he died, I woke up in the middle of the night to pray, which is not typical for me. I sleep good, even apparently when my grandpa's dying. But not that night. I woke up and I prayed that he wouldn't be alone. And mostly I felt assured by Jesus that he wasn't alone. And so when my mom called me in the morning to tell me that he had died, I knew that Jesus woke me up to tell me that he was with him and that he wasn't alone. Now, you may sit there and doubt that I know that, and right you should. But let me tell you, anything I ever say about hell will be shaped by two things. My convictions, as they have been shaped by the Bible 
and who I have known Jesus to be, and my love for my grandfather, and the God I believe loves him. And I would submit to you that Jesus has left so much unclear so that a kind of similar compassionate uncertainty could shape us. It's more honest, y'all. You don't have to be afraid of how much you love people. And you don't have to wonder if somehow that compromises your faith. You don't have to be afraid about the just world that you long for and think somehow that if you became a Christian, you would have to care less about justice. That's a lie. You don't have to become a charlatan or a colonizer to be an evangelist. Leon, good news. Have you ever met somebody who had something genuinely good to share about which they were genuinely thankful and happy and had them tell you about it and have them walk away then and you think, colonizer, <laughs> charlatan? I don't think so. When Jesus walked up to Peter on the beach, he looked at him dead in the eyeballs, and he said, follow me. I know we act like that's an invitation. And I think Jesus knew and Peter knew he could walk away. But it sounds like a command because it is one. Some of you have been called by Jesus to be good news people. And I believe that the Holy Spirit would like to reclaim a gift that God has given to you to be exactly that. To choose that whatever hurts you have been through, whatever your history, whatever weights that you are carrying, they are not greater than this love that holds you and calls you and redeems you. His love is greater than that. And there's more of him to know and there's more of the gospel to believe in and choose to live into. His love is greater than that. Some of you have a decision to make about Jesus, and you need to hear me. You are waiting for your affections to be in the right place and your mind to be in the right place, and you need to hear me say, Jesus didn't ask any questions. He walked right up to Peter, and he walked right up to Andrew, and he said, follow me. And you need to trust that he can heal the parts of you that cannot say yes and say yes with the part of you that is not broken and can say yes and trust that your affections may catch up and your intellect may catch up. But if all you've got is your will, then that's what he'll have. When the sun comes up in the morning, the sun does not get to the horizon and say, excuse me. I'd like to rise now. Would you have me? How do you feel about that? No. The sun rises. And you may seek refuge in the shadows, and I understand why, and God knows you're there, but you need to hear me, y'all. Someday there will be no shadows. There will be no more hiding. The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. 
and we will all say glory. The shadows are not home for you. Love wins. Mercy, Jesus. Have mercy, God, and help us. Help us, Lord, to hear you. Come, Jesus. Will you help us now, Lord, to pray, to receive goodness and truth, the promise that is for us and is ours. Will you help us, Lord, to receive it, to hold on to it, and also now, Jesus, to pray from it and through it for the world. This gospel that comes for us and then works through us. Jesus, help us now as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.